Our theme for the year, as we've seen, is based on Galatians chapter 5, walk, live, keep. Walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. In our Monday chapels, we want to expound a very important section of Paul's great letter to the Romans, chapters 6 through 8, to give us more insight into our theme. And specifically in our text today, I wonder if you notice, as Jared read our text for us, two of our key words appear. In verse 4, Paul speaks of walking in newness of life. And in verse 2, he asks, how shall we, how can we who died to sin live in it, still live in sin? That raises an important question that Christians have wrestled with really throughout the centuries. As believers, what is our relationship to sin? In Galatians 5, we have the picture of the spirit and the flesh at war with each other. There's a battle going on in our hearts. Sometimes we we wonder, is it even possible to change? to break that destructive habit that seems to have a vice grip on me, to to stop giving in to to sin. Is that even possible? Other times we think, should we even bother trying? I mean, isn't that what grace is for? Sure we sin, but, but God forgives us. In fact, after we studied a little theology, we might say something like, well, well, God gets more glory when I sin because then he displays more and more of his grace. Should that be our outlook? Well, that's precisely what Paul is addressing in chapter 6. I don't know how many people actually think like that, but Paul thinks such a conclusion we sh- that we should continue in sin that grace may abound, such a conclusion from what he has been teaching is absolutely ridiculous. But if we're honest, we all have ways of justifying our sin. We've probably all given ourselves a pass by reasoning something like this. Well, well yeah, I shouldn't do this, but... I know God will forgive me. He's a God of grace. Paul wants to deliver us from that warped and distorted way of thinking. He wants to show uh, that as believers, our relationship to sin has changed. It's no longer our master because we have been united to Christ. Here's the heart of what Paul tells us in Romans 6, 1 through 7. Through union with Christ, we've died to sin and we've been raised to new life. Sin is no longer the reigning power in our lives. So we're free to to walk and to live in newness of life. And that's a transforming mindset. Now let's see how that works out in our passage. He begins with, in verse 1, a serious objection. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You'll notice there are two questions there. The first is, what shall we say then? We'll say about what? 
Paul anticipates that in light of what he's just been saying at the end of chapter 5, someone will stand up like a lawyer in a courtroom and declare, I object. I object, Your Honor. What's the problem? Well, if you look back, Paul has been arguing in chapter 5 that the abundance of grace we receive in Christ is far better than what we received in Adam. What did we receive in Adam? Death, condemnation, the rule of sin in our lives. In Christ, we're under new ownership. We receive the grace of justification and righteousness and life. So the grace we receive in Christ triumphs over the sin and death that we had in Adam. At the end of verse 20, notice Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or as some would translate it, grace superabounded. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Now our objector stands up and reasons, if grace abounds over sin, if when we sin, we experience more and more grace, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? That's the, the logical question in light of what Paul has been saying. The German poet Heinrich Heine apparently said on his deathbed, God will forgive, that is his business. Another poet, W.H. Auden, has one of his characters claim, I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Paul would, ha would have us have none of that kind of thinking. And so in verse 2, we have a strong rejection. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? The ESV translates Paul's answer in verse 2, by no means. The New American Standard has, may it never be different translations and, and commentators have tried to capture Paul's emotionally charged and highly negative answer. One simply has the emphatic, never. Another, absolutely not. Another, that would be absurd. J.B. Phillips, a British writer who produced a popular paraphrase of the New Testament put, what a ghastly thought, or perhaps in his British accent, what a ghastly thought. And of course, the classic, God forbid, of the King James Version. Why such a strong rejection, such apostolic abhorrence to continue in sin or to live in sin would mean to go on living a lifestyle of sin, with sin as your master, not Christ. 
It would be to live for yourself and, and your desires without the desire to obey God and his word. And that, Paul sees as absolutely incompatible with who we are in Christ. Paul says in verse 2 that we have died to sin. So how can we still live in it? Does that mean that we're no longer able to sin? Well, clearly not, because verses 12 and 13 exhort us not to sin. And unfortunately, our experience demonstrates that, yes, we're still able to sin. So in what sense has the Christian died to sin? Paul argues in this, concept, in this context that we've died to the power of sin or the reign and rule of sin in our lives. And if you follow the context closely, you'll notice that sin is personified as a power that rules over a person. In chapter 5, we learn that sin entered the world through Adam and it reigns over people and it brings death and condemnation. Chapter 5, verse 14 and verse 17 give us the picture of, of death reigning. Verse 21 of chapter 5 speaks of sin reigning. And in, here in chapter 6, Paul speaks of sin as a, as a slave master over us. Look at the specific language he uses in verse 6. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 9. Death ha no longer has dominion over him or is no longer master over him or rules over him. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you, or sin shall not be master over you. So Paul is arguing that, that we have died to sin in the sense that, that sin is no longer our master. We've been transferred from Adam to Christ, from the realm where sin reigns to the realm where Christ reigns. To continue, to continue in sin would be to live under the rule of our old master, following his ways, doing his bidding. And Paul's saying we're no longer slaves of sin, so it'd be crazy to live as though we were. Now, any analogy uh, will not be perfect, but try this one. What would you say to an adopted orphan going out of the front door of the mansion of his new family and heading down to the corner where he used to beg for food? You'd say, what are you doing? That's not who you are anymore. Why would you leave a, a feast at the family table to return to the corner to beg for bread? Or think of an illustration from the realm of sports. I was going to use a hockey illustration, but I'll contextualize and use a soccer illustration. Suppose that for the first two years of your college experience, you went to Moody Bible Institute. Yes, there were 
much groaning going on. And let's say you played for Moody's soccer team. But then you saw the light, grace came into your life, and you transferred to Emmaus Bible College. Now you are part of the Emmaus Eagles. You're no longer part of Moody. You are an eagle. But then you have a game against Moody. And even though you have the Emmaus uniform on, you suddenly start passing the ball to players on Moody's team. You even start shooting on your own goalie. Is that what you call it in soccer? That's entirely inappropriate. Now, you might still have friends on the other team. Their uniform is familiar to you. You wore it for so long. But you belong to the Eagles. It would be incompatible. It would be absurd, really, for you to join them and play against Emmaus. You have a new identity, a new position. The old situation is gone. That's what Paul is saying about us. It would be absurd to keep living for sin now that we belong to Christ. In verses 3 through 7, Paul will then give us a, a rather detailed and liberating explanation. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's liberating explanation is that we have died with Christ to sin. We've risen with Christ to new life, so we're no longer enslaved to sin. How, how does that happen in our lives? Well, Paul's explanation is through our union with Christ. We are now in Christ. He is in us, as we've been singing. We've been united to him, so we actually participated in his death, burial, and resurrection. Union with Christ is a key doctrine for the Apostle Paul. And he's describing it here in verse 3. He says, again, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were baptized into Christ Jesus. So when we were saved, when we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit joined us, united us to Christ so that we are in him and, and his righteousness has become, become ours. And all the benefits of his work are ours because we're in him. We've entered into the closest possible relationship with Christ. Just as when a husband and wife are married, they're united together. And if a wife happens to, to marry a wealthy husband, all his riches become hers. And that's certainly true of us when we are united to Christ. All of his spiritual riches became ours. 
You'll notice that Paul uses the language of baptism in verses 3 and 4. And just to clarify, water baptism is not what unites us to Christ. The Holy Spirit does that. But water baptism does provide a picture of our participation in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him, and then we were raised with him. And, and again, baptism, in a sense, symbolizes that. But, but baptism really isn't the main point here. The main point is that because we have been united to Christ, his death becomes ours. Now, what's the practical significance of this? What does Paul want us to take from this? By uniting us to Christ's death, God has not only atoned for our sins, but he's dealt a fatal blow to sin's tyranny in our lives. Look at verse 6 again. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self is a reference to all that we were in Adam, outside of Christ, dominated by sin, living under the reign of sin and death. That self, Paul says, was crucified with Christ. As John Stott says, what was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. We were crucified with Christ, Paul says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or rendered powerless. In our sinful state outside of Christ, we used our bodies to serve sin. As verses 12 and 13 say, sin reigned in our mortal bodies and we presented our bodies and our parts of our bodies as instruments to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. That's the kind of power sin had over us. But Paul says, we were crucified with Christ, we died with Christ, so that power would be broken in our lives. Verse 7 says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, think of it in terms of someone who is addicted to drugs. The drug is a power over that person's life. He or she serves drugs. He presents his body to drugs as his master. But suppose that person goes through a, a new treatment program that effectively breaks the addiction so that the drug doesn't control the person anymore. The drug's power is broken in that person's life. That's what happens to us in relation to our sin. Our union with Christ in his death broke the vice grip that sin had in our lives, over our lives, and frees us from sin's power. But there's more. 
Paul speaks also of our union with Christ in his resurrection. And that's really the main point of the section. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, here's the purpose, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The point of dying with, with Christ and, and sin's power being broken in our lives is ultimately that we might live, that we might walk in newness of life. And Paul is saying that through being raised with Christ, we can we can now live a new life. We can live for God. Christ is our new master. And he is not a cruel tyrant with the stench of death on him like sin was. He's our loving Lord who enables us to live for God, who, who opens our eyes to the beauty of God, who places in us the desire, the ability to live for God and to walk in his good ways and enjoy him forever. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's union with Christ in his death and resurrection. But, but before we walk away, we, before we close our Bibles, there's a big question that maybe you're already asking. If our old self is dead and the power of sin is broken, why do we continue to sin? Because we do. Paul says our old self was crucified with sin, or our old self was crucified with Christ, but Ephesians 4.22, he exhorts believers to put off your old self. He said here in chapter 6, verse 2, that we died to sin. But in verse 12, he exhorts us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. How do we make sense of this? Many Bible teachers over the years have explained it this way. We as believers have been freed from the penalty of sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've also been freed from the power of sin. That's Paul's argument in our passage. But while we're still in this life, we still have to contend with the presence of sin. We've not yet been glorified. That's, that's future. That's a glorious future. When we are with Christ in glory, we will be fully conformed to his image and the presence of sin will be forever banished. We will never again have a sinful thought or word or deed. What a glorious hope that is. But until that time, we know that we still struggle with the flesh. Yes, the power of sin has been broken, but its presence still lingers. We feel its influence. We feel its pull. The addict who has been delivered from addiction 
can still be tempted to go back to drugs, to the old ways. Commentator Doug Moo says this, What we were in Adam is no more, but until heaven, the temptation to live in Adam always remains. But Paul is instructing us in these important doctrines and truths to help us, to equip us to not continue in sin. He wants us to know these things so that we'll act on them. Paul wants us to know who we are, what has happened to us in Christ, so that we'll live accordingly. And once we know that we've died to the rule of sin, once we know that we've died and we've, we've risen with Christ to new, to new life, we're able to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God. In other words, we, we bring this truth to bear that, that we, we don't have to submit to sin and its temptations. We're free to live for Christ and so to submit to his rule in our lives. So it's critical, it's absolutely critical for us to remember that we are united to Christ. We are in him. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have a new identity. To return to our earlier illustration, remember you're in a new family. You don't have to go begging again. Remember you're on a new team. Don't play for the old one still physically possible, but it's completely incompatible with our new identity. And so our union with Christ is designed to help us in our day-to-day struggle in our Christian lives. We do continue to struggle, and that can be discouraging. We can feel defeated. Maybe you feel that way this morning. We can feel that sin's reign is alive and well. But these truths in Romans 6, if we apply them, can bring us real help in the struggle. Dane Ortland, in his book, Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners, puts it this way. Listen to what he says. Consider the darkness that remains in your life, that place in your life where you feel most defeated. Our sin looms large. They seem so insurmountable, but Christ and your union with him loom larger still. As far as sin in your life reaches, Christ and your union with him reach further. As deep as your failure goes, Christ and your union with him go deeper still. As strong as your sin feels, the bond of your union with Jesus Christ is stronger still. And then he exhorts us this way. Live the rest of your life mindful of your union with the Prince of Heaven. Let an ever-deepening awareness of your union with him strengthen your resistance to sin. You have been strengthened with the power to fight and overcome sin because the power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in you, living and active, for Jesus Christ himself resides in you. You see, that's doctrinal truth that's designed to make a difference in our lives. So when temptation to sin calls you, and the old patterns expect to have their way with you, 
answer them back, talk back to them, and say, you no longer rule my life. Jesus Christ has broken your power over me, and he now reigns in my life. He's freed me to walk away from you. Yours is the way of death. His is the path of life. By God's grace, I'm following him. I'm walking in newness of life.